Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at the USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Welcome to our election R&D broadcast right after the Democratic Convention. We're doing this in partnership with the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, and I want to express our gratitude to Jamie Cabler and Deborah Chu. Uh, we're going to go about 35 or 40 minutes, and we're going to then uh, uh, turn this over to Q&A. If you have a question, write it in the Q&A box. Our assistant director, Erica Maldonado-Singh, will then have those questions and she'll be able to ask them when we turn to them. Today we have a very special guest uh, who most of you will recognize and who's a great friend of mine. Uh, Steve Schmidt was in the White House with George W. Bush, uh, was a top aide to Dick Cheney. He ran the Schwarzenegger re-election campaign. Unfortunately, I have to say, given that I was so involved in the Kerry campaign, he was also a strategist for the Bush campaign in 2004. He ran the McCain campaign in 2008, and he is now one of the leading lights of the Lincoln Project, a group of dissident Republicans who have broken with President Trump. Steve, I'm so grateful for you being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to start by talking about the virtual nature of this convention. Uh, I think there was this assumption that it was going to be a mess, that it was going to be chaotic. For me, at least, it actually helped uh, the Democratic cause. It brought folks in from across the country. Whoever thought the roll call for a convention could be so mesmerizing? Uh, absolutely amazing. And I suspect, and I don't know whether you agree, Steve, future conventions may very well be hybrid, where you have the convention in one place, but you're doing lots of stuff, including the roll call out in the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, first off, I, you know, Stephanie Cutter, uh, the longtime Democratic strategist who you know well, was, was tasked with pulling this off. And what a brilliant job she did um, conceptualizing it, conceiving it, and the immensity of the work product uh, to, to pull that off is just astounding. And I think it was extremely successful. I don't think we'll ever see another traditional roll call on the convention floor, as opposed to a montage like they did around the country where you see the beauty of the country. It's geographic, it's geological, it's sociological diversities. Um, the um, it, it was a I think it was a it was a terrific event and you're going to I, I think in the future just like all things because of COVID I mean I think traveling will be different three years from now business meetings will be different in conventions and this is just um you know one one asset one one aspect of of the the changes that are going to be wrought I think by you know by this by this disease. Yeah, I, I said a couple of weeks out when I was talking to reporters that I th that you had to think about the acceptance speech in a completely different way. That 
this was much more like an FDR fireside chat, an Oval Office report to the country from JFK or Ronald Reagan. Uh, it wasn't going to be full of applause lines. And that Biden was actually out there kind of practicing and getting ready to do that with several of the speeches he gave when he left his home in Delaware. Uh, it was the shortest acceptance speech in modern memory, came in around 25 minutes. I thought it was very powerful. I thought it was even more powerful because the Trump campaign had lowered expectations about what Biden could do. How did you react to that speech? I think that speech is the most important speech in my lifetime. Um, because I believe it is all on the line in this election. I believe this is the most important election the country's faced since 1864, which determined whether we were going to remain a, a union or not. And Joe Biden delivered a speech that talked about the country, talked about the urgency of the situation we're in, and gave us a blueprint for recovery and renewal. And it starts with the concept that Biden was so articulate about, which is that I'm going to be the president of the people that voted against me also, and I'll work as hard for them as I will for my supporters. And what Trump has been is a factional leader. He has been a tribal leader. He is the warlord of about 30% of the country that wants to wage a type of political war on the remaining parts of the country. And so this speech crystallized perfectly the, the most significant political choice the country has faced within anybody on this who's watching this within any of our lifetimes. And so the stakes, because they've been so high and because he delivered so well, and I, I think about I think about great oratory at conventions, and there's been there's been a lot of it. And you know, Bob, you wrote, uh, authored one of the great political speeches uh, that that's ever been. The dream will never die that Ted Kennedy delivered um, at a Democratic convention. But but the two most important speeches I've ever heard in my political life. And I, I'm trying to trying to think through this. I was born in 1970, right? So I'm 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 after you know Dr. King's speech on the Mall. I'm after Bobby Kennedy's short speech on the night that King was assassinated. I'm after all of that. In in my lifetime, the two most important speeches were Barack Obama's at this convention and Joe Biden's, because they framed the most important choice that we've ever faced in the last 50 years, at least. Yeah. Uh, I wanna talk about Barack and, and Michelle Obama in a minute, but first a couple of other things, because this whole convention, as you suggested, brilliantly orchestrated by Stephanie Cutter and her team, uh, what set a context for what Biden did with his, his acceptance speech, which was kind of a climax. But think back to the first night. You had all those Republicans, you had John Kasich, you had Colin Powell. You had Christine Todd Whitman. Uh, what message was that sending? And why did that not stir some backlash from some of the more progressive parts of the Democratic Party? Well, I think that this is one of the broadest and deeply broad coalitions forming together in, in American history. And I think, as you know, you and I are good friends. Um, 
You know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders and I wouldn't agree on, on very many issues, but we're in, we're in total agreement about something. And he said it last night. He said, look, we're a coalition of progressives, of liberals, of moderates, of conservatives who stand for America's ideas and ideals of democracy, of freedom, of liberty, of the rule of law. And that coalition is coming together to put down Trumpism. This isn't an argument between progressives and conservatives that's playing out in, in America. We, we had two small L liberal parties who argued about policy within the frameworks of the small r Republican form of government that our founders created and generations of Americans have strengthened and passed on to us. The, the only political party in America that is fidelitous to the ideas, the precepts, the concepts of American democracy in this moment in time is the Democratic Party. Donald Trump is an illiberal man with an autocratic disposition who is attacked and is dividing the country. And he is autocratic in his disposition, in his actions, in his personality. And we've seen the total capitulation, the total surrendering, the total submission of almost the whole of the Republican Party and its elected class to Trumpism. And there's a significant percentage of this country that have never voted for Democrats but are going to vote for Joe Biden. And the answer will be found in a review of that convention. That wasn't a convention that celebrated the Democratic Party so much as it was a convention that celebrated America. And, and that the idea of America is worth preserving and defending. And if you want to preserve and defend it, this is the team you have to be on. And, and that's, to me, what, what, what this was about. And these Republican voices out, out across the country, well, these Republican voters out across the country, when we get into next week's exposition of insanity, right? You, one of the reasons you've seen such precipitous drops in Republicans saying the self-identification number, the number of people that say, hey, I'm a Republican, why it's plummeted, is because people are turning this off and walking away from it. Now, there's confusion when that happens in the polling that I think confuses people, which is that as a political party shrinks, like a star in the heavens collapsing, as it gets smaller, it heats up, it intensifies at the core. So as the party shrinks, it will get crazier. As it gets crazier, it will shrink, as it shrinks, it will get crazier, and the people who were once part of it will be further and further outside of it and available for Democrats. I want to say a bit about Bernie Sanders because I think that this year has been so different for Democrats than 2016. He was for Joe Biden early on. He was unequivocally for him. He helped to calm down some of the people on his side who might have dissented. And I think that's a product of two things. I think, one, it's a product of what you're talking about the existential danger that Sanders believes Trump represents. But secondly, Joe Biden went out of his way, not just in the campaign, but back in 2016, to, be, to talk to Bernie Sanders all the time, to respect him. And when they had debates, 
he was talking to him. Now that's the kind of, you know him and I know him, that's the kind of person he is. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's just natural to him. But I think that made a huge difference. And I also think putting together teams of people from both sides where Biden, for example, did not agree to Medicare for all, but said, I will be for a public option, which has always been his position, gave respect to the people who had lost the nominating race. Also, some of the cosmetics, like that keynote speech, I've never seen anything like it, delivered by 13 different young Democrats who represent a new generation, I think created a kind of balance to the traditional politicians and the Republicans. I want to ask you about, and there were a lot of moving moments here that revealed so much about Biden. But the one that really blew me away last night was that young man, Braden Harrington, uh, from New Hampshire, who had told Biden about his stutter during the campaign, and he ended up speaking at the convention. And I thought it was one of the most powerful speeches I heard in terms of revealing Biden's humanity. Absolutely. So let's back up for, for a second and just talk about character for, for a few seconds. That young man, if Donald Trump was in high school with him, Donald Trump is the type of person who would bully that young man and make fun of him. And Joe Biden's the type of guy who would knock that bully on his ass in defense of that young man, right? That, that's who the people we are dealing with, right? And because at, at, at a core, talk more about it, this, is a, this is a contest between a good man and a very bad man between a decent man and an indecent man, between a moral man and an amoral man. And so that young man put on a clinic for the country of what guts and courage look like. And courage is not an American virtue, but it is a virtue that is fundamental to America. And that young man had the same type of guts and courage as the young man who came off of landing craft 75 years ago, 76 years ago, onto the beaches of France to stand up there on national television, to make yourself vulnerable, to express a conviction, is profoundly moving to me. And as someone who was a kid who had a speech impediment, I have enormous sympathy and enormous appreciation for the inherent decency that you see in Joe Biden connecting with this young man and giving that young man the confidence to do what he did. We live in an era of political cowardice where the totality, with the exception of Mitt Romney of the elected Republican class, has completely submitted themselves, surrendered their agency to this vile, dishonest, incompetent, maliced man in the White House. And I compare that cowardice with that young man's courage. And I think it says a lot. And so I, I, thought, I thought it was an incredible moment. I think it's a defining moment. And I think that the entire country took notice of that last night, who, who watched it and got deeply what that moment was about, which was much more than what it superficially appeared to be. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, in fact, it was part of a whole panoply of moments like that. The train conductor that, uh, that, Joe, that Joe Biden knew and when he got sick, he would talk to, take care of. I was stunned by the elevator operator at the New York Times uh, who put Biden's name in the nomination. What politician riding up that elevator, trying to get one of the most important endorsements in the country, wouldn't be preoccupied, probably wouldn't even notice the elevator operator, and instead Biden got in an interaction with her which went viral and then asked her to nominate him. Uh, so I think that in terms of filling out this whole character dimension that you were talking about, the convention was a tour de force. Uh, on policy, and people haven't talked about this much, I thought one of the miracles of the Biden speech at 25 minutes was that he managed to lay out a policy on COVID, he managed to lay out a policy on infrastructure and the economy, and he managed to give an indication that he'd be a very different president in terms of foreign policy. For example, talking about the bounties the Russians are paying the Taliban for killing American soldiers. So I thought that too, uh, I thought that was important. I thought if it had just been a character convention, Trump's a bad character, Biden's a good character, they would have missed something. And that's why I also thought that Barack Obama made a searing case against Trump. I can't remember any former president doing anything like that to a successor. Basically, he told us democracy itself is at stake. It is. And so it, while, while Biden was talking about, and the convention was talking about health care, COVID, what to do about the economy, and about Biden's character, I think Barack Obama raised the stakes as high as they have ever been raised in a presidential campaign. And I think it was aided in that by Michelle Obama, uh, who gave a terrific speech. What do you think about Jill Biden in that classroom? I thought it was, I thought it was terrific. Um, you know, it's one of those anomalies of, of American politics is Jill Biden has been the second lady for eight years. She conducted herself with class and, and dignity, but the country doesn't know her. And the country got to know her. And really to see what I thought was an exposition on faith and love, um, a shattered family. I mean, Joe Biden has experienced the things that all of us in the darkest parts of our mind, your greatest anxieties, the, 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 the worst things that could happen, the worst, most tragic. And that he's gotten up and he's moved forward with grace and decency and faith and maintained his, his optimism. And I think the quality of the man's character. And I, I just want to come back for one second to something we were just talking about, which is you talk about the elevator operator. So coming out of Republican politics, you, for so long, people would talk about values, right? The values voters. And, and we've seen the values voters as a general proposition, the profound hypocrisy, right, of, you know, the people like Jerry Falwell Jr. and others. But I want to talk about a different type of values. And it's the type of value that Joe Biden speaks of when he 
summons his father's voice for us when he takes us back to the place and time that he grew up in. His father, a working class guy, and the lessons and the wisdom that was bestowed on someone who I believe is going to be the president of the United States by a blue collar working class dad. And it was about the dignity of labor and that every person has purpose and worth. And everybody who works hard, plays by the rules, deserves to get treated with respect. So Joe Biden sees people. He doesn't look past them or over them or doesn't consign them to a class or a job. And that is part of a tradition in this country with a respect for working people that, that I think is a value that is on decline, in decline, and has been lost that he's bringing a sense of renewal to. And I, and I, think, that's a, I think that that's a really, important, a really important thing. When you saw Biden's granddaughters, when you saw his family, you just see normalcy and decency. I want a president who has a dog again in the White House. Right? <laughs> I want, right, I, you, we think about this, the president's campaign manager from the last election was arrested on the yacht of a Chinese billionaire off the coast of Connecticut by postal agents arriving by seaplane, right, in international waters to get him because of this fraud. And Trump's son is on, in on it. His, his, his son's girlfriend is in on it. And we're not going to have any of that anymore. And I, I just, you, so you saw the normalcy of Jill Biden, the family. They, 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 are, they, are, they are people who have been touched by tragedy, who have endured, and who shine as an example of decency and faith that I think everyone in the country can look up to. And I, I, I just like, it was like coming up for air after being underwater for too long, right? To just experience some normalcy. And it was terrific to see. I want to talk a little bit about where the race stands right now in between the Democratic and Republican conventions. In the early data in our USC Dornsife poll, uh, Joe Biden has an 11-point lead. Uh, this was the poll, by the way, that indicated that Trump had a chance to win in 2016, and he kept quoting it all the time. I suspect he won't be quoting it at least now. Uh, do you think this is, this is a, a, a eight, 10 point race right now, or is it more like five or six? And do you see it narrowing? I do. Um, so I, I think that the national polls, um, national polls are accurate in the sense, but they over, well, you know, there's, you're reflecting at, you're reflecting the populations of New York and California in these polls, you know, where Trump is just being blown away, right, by, by outsized numbers. And I think there is a Trump undercount, right, of a, of a couple of points. Um, I think the race is probably six to eight right now, but I think it will narrow, you know, to three to four as we, as we go on. And you know, so I think that that structural narrowing is, is going to happen. But Biden is, is in strong a position as he can be in. And I think that the country is coming to the judgment pretty decisively that Trump just can't do the job. He's enfeebled. He's incompetent. He's just not up for it. And 
And I think that's what the verdict will be, because literally, unless your last name is Trump, no one in this country is better off than they were four years ago. And that matters. But if it narrows to three or four points, doesn't that mean that you could have the same kind of situation in the Electoral College you had four years ago, maybe compounded by a breakdown in the post office and postal voting? You worry about that? I worry about it every day, for sure. For sure. Like, I, I do think with mail-in voting, it's entirely possible, right, that Donald Trump could be ahead, right, a red mirage, so to speak, on election night where he goes out and declares victory and then throws the legitimacy of the election into question um, by convincing 35 to 40 percent of the country that it was stolen. But he's going to do that anyway, right? I mean, this is, I mean, this here's the thing. This is why Barack Obama was not hyperbolic, right, is that Trump's lies are different than the lies of most ordinary politicians. When politicians lie, right, quotes around it, you, you have two types of lies, right, typically, right? And it's a strange business because if you, in any other profession, right, if you went around talking about yourself and the superlatives the politicians do, <laughs> right, the people you were around from family members to work colleagues would have you institutionalized, right? And so... It's the lie of puffery, right? That uh, well, I was a little bit closer to the front line than I actually was, right? Or it's the line of self-interest to avoid embarrassment. I didn't have sex with that woman. Trump's lies are completely different. They are lies of authority. They require submission of your intellectual agency, right? And it's straight out of 1984 at the end of the book where the party official has four fingers up and says to Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? Winston tortured, breaks down and cries and says, I only see four. And the party official says, it could be three, it could be five. The party will tell you how many it is. And so over and over and over again, Trump requires people to submit to what they can clearly see from crowd size to a hundred other issues of something that's not true. The administration has loosed state violence on peaceful Americans exercising their constitutional rights to speech and assembly. He has assaulted and desecrated the idea of equal justice under the law. Does anybody really have any doubt that if Donald Trump could, that he wouldn't lock up political opponents, that he wouldn't use the instruments of government to attack dissidents, that he wouldn't cancel the election, that he wouldn't like to be president for life. He's expressed over and over and over again his admiration for the world's autocrats. His words should be taken seriously. It's a big deal when a president in the United States says he may not accept the results of an election. What are you, what are you talking about? Whole country is founded on the idea that we pick our leaders period. We're in, a, we're in a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous moment. And, you know, I grew up, like I said, born in 1970, which meant that if you were 20 years old on Omaha Beach in 1944, you were 45 years old when I was born. These men were the teachers and the principals of the school. And there was a question we talked about in the 70s and the 80s. 
when there was a real study going on. How did this happen in Germany? This was a civilized country, civilized society. And there was always a question that we talked about. There were TV movies made about it. There were books. There was intellectual debate. Could that happen here? And the answer was basically, no, that couldn't happen here. Because the high watermark of authoritarian movements in this country was 1938 in Madison Square Garden when 50,000 Nazis showed up at the German-American Boone meeting. And then the war started and it collapsed. But it is happening here. It's happening right now. When you have militarized federal officers, absent badges, IDs, any markings of any type, shoving people into white vans off the street in America, where he's talking about deployments of 75,000, those militarized federal officers from the Bureau of Prisons or Immigration to do law enforcement activities in cities and counties. It's happening. It's happening right now. And that's what Barack Obama was talking about. And he delivered a fundamentally important wake-up call to people in this country on that subject. Ronald Reagan was right when he said, freedom is one generation away from being gone. And Barack Obama was right when he said, this is the moment where we could lose it. Well, that's pretty powerful. Uh, I want to talk, uh, we have a lot of questions, but I want to talk about a couple of other things briefly before we go to them. I was thinking about the Republican convention next week and about the fact that I guess the president's going to give the acceptance speech on the South Lawn of the White House if it doesn't rain, uh, the temperature will probably be somewhere between 85 and 90 degrees. But at most conventions for an incumbent, if people are chanting four more years, four more years, four more years, that's kind of a triumphalist chant. We've done a good job and we're going to keep going. I suspect that if they chant four more years and the country is watching this, a lot of people are going to pull back and say, oh, no, I don't think we can spend four more years of this. That throwing it into the future, the choice into the future, and actually I think right now it's a referendum on Trump, but casting it into the future actually could hurt Trump. I have a theory, and of course I could easily be wrong, that people have basically already decided what they want to do. And the only question is whether or not the election is going to be fair. Do you agree with that? I broadly agree with that. I broadly agree with that. I think that I think the country is so tribalized, has become so tribalized. And I, I and I was worried at the Democratic Convention that it could go down the path of repelling people who want to get under the Democratic tent by not being welcoming. You know, politics of exclusion is um you know, unfortunately, more more prevalent today than the politics of inclusion. But it was such an inclusive convention and inclusive messaging that I don't I don't think that'll be an issue. I, I think for sure, you know, Trump is trying to stoke as much chaos as he can, right? You know, for the purposes of asserting more power in the name of stopping the chaos that he's caused. And that chaos, whether it's the deliberate slowing of the mail or another dozen examples, is what his strategy is. And we've never faced this moment 
um, where you have to look at this and say, this race isn't over until high noon on January 20th, 2021. It's not over till Joe Biden takes the, takes the oath of office. And we're going to go through a very, 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 very difficult couple of months in this country. Yeah, because I don't think we're going to have an election night. We're going to have an election week or an election month, unless we're both wrong and Biden does hold a lead along the lines of 10 or 11 percent, in which case it'd probably be pretty clear election night, at which point Trump, I suspect, would still say this is being stolen. Oh, for sure. You know, he, for sure he's going to say that, for sure. And I, and I hope you're right. Um, well, actually, I hope we're both wrong, right? I hope it is an eight or nine point decisive victory. I mean, you know, Trump is, he certainly earned a decisive repudiation. And there's a lot of encouraging numbers across all of the states, including states like Georgia, states like North Carolina, states like Texas. We're at the front edge of a mortgage and a mortgage foreclosure and eviction crisis in this country that's going to dwarf anything that happened in the, in the Great Recession. We're going to see a lot more food lines over the next couple of months, I, and I and I think and I think this I think that there's another thing that plays plays here that will play out in the fall, and it's that you know my daughter went back to school today. You know today was the first day. I, I think I give it two weeks, right? And there's no chance I think that it goes past three, and so if schools are opening, they're going to close, and I think a lot of Americans. In, the, in their imagination, when they're dealing with COVID, they're thinking about it like, well, we got to be by now, right? We're at the halfway point, right? We're not at the halfway point. We're, this, is, this is just beginning, the, the consequences of this. This is, this, is, this is one of the great tragedies in the history of the country. And we're going to get to numbers that are going to be north of 300 to 400,000 dead Americans. 405,000 is how many was killed in the Second World War. We're going to see economic catastrophe, maybe not on the stock market, but on Main Street. And I think over the course of the fall, as the weather starts to change and people aren't able to be outside and people are home again, we're going we're to have a lot of bleakness in the, in, the, in the spirit and the mood of the country, which will merge with the chaos that Trump is stoking is going to give Joe Biden uh, a real test of leadership and, and character that he has to that he has to meet. Just as simple as that. Yeah, well, it's certainly the case that if he wins, he's going to have an enormous mess dumped into his lap on January 20th of 2021. Uh, that's going to require that there actually be some bipartisan cooperation to get some of the things done that have to be done. Uh, we have a lot of questions, so I think we ought to turn this over to questions. Erica, you can ask the questions. Hi, folks. So we'll start off with a question from Brianna Johnson. Considering the fact that Biden is in such a good position right now, are you surprised that the convention didn't focus more on down-ballot races, especially Senate races in purple states? No, no, no. I mean, look, it's that, you know, we haven't seen or heard a lot from Joe Biden over the course of the spring and summer. So this was really important. It was really well done. Um, you know, this isn't the forum to win the Senate races, right? This'll that'll play out in the in the states and it's looking very good for the for the Democrats in the states. Yeah, and I would add that 
to the extent that you build up Biden, you strengthen Biden, you strengthened his position in the race, you were helping those Senate races. That featuring a, you know, a particular Senate race in a particular state and spending, say, 20 minutes on that actually would have been a waste of convention time. This was about Joe Biden. This was about, as Steve suggested, an inclusive Democratic Party where people who are engaged with Steve and like the Lincoln Project could feel welcome, where they wouldn't feel that somehow or other people didn't want them and didn't want them to be part of the enterprise. How affect conventions ultimately at swinging voters for the election? That's a question from Jonathan Lee. Go ahead. What's the question again? How effective are conventions at swinging voters, at persuading voters? Well, they're big moments for sure, right? I mean, you want to, they matter. Sometimes you're able to establish a lead and not look back like Bill Clinton in, in 1992. You know, George Bush had a very successful convention in 04. Barack Obama never looked back really, you know, from their convention. And then, you know, the financial crisis occurring right after. So they shape, they shape in the 92 Republican convention where Pat Buchanan you know, got up there and gave his crazy speech. You know, that was that was lights out, you know, for George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. So they they can be defining, but they they are big moments right up there with the debates to frame, you know, the choice for people. Yeah. And and I would say to talk about George Herbert Walker Bush, his acceptance speech at the 1988 Republican convention did him an immense amount of good. He'd been the wimp. In fact, Newsweek had him on, on, on the cover uh, calling him a wimp. And he came across so powerfully in that speech that he began very quickly to close the gap with Dukakis. Uh, Al Gore in 2000 gained somewhere between 11 and 14 points in his acceptance speech in 47 minutes. It doesn't mean it always happens, but it can happen. And I think what was critical about this convention was that we haven't seen Biden in the way that you would normally see the presumptive Democratic nominee because of COVID. And this convention really filled out the picture of Joe Biden, who he is as a human being, what he wants to do as president. Uh, And I think, by the way, and we haven't mentioned this, the importance of the Kamala Harris choice uh, as motivating voters who, for example, in 2012, uh, came out and voted for Barack Obama, but in 2016 did not come out and uh, and vote for Hillary Clinton. So I think conventions can be very important. Any thoughts on whether the Democrats spend too much time being anti-Trump versus highlighting the Democratic agenda? That's a question from Deb Sampson. Right, look, I don't think the Democrats should have turned this into a State of the Union message spread out over four nights, where they did this policy, this policy, this policy, and this policy. Biden talked about COVID, talked about the economy, talked about climate. Other people did that, talked about foreign policy. And I think what's worried a lot of folks who've made this comment, and I've seen it in my Twitter feed this morning, is that Hillary Clinton spent so much time talking about Trump's character. But Biden begins from a very different position than she did. He's in much better shape in terms of his favorable unfavorables than Hillary Clinton ever was. Uh, so I think, I think this convention struck just the right notes. I understand why Democrats are worried. After 2016, they're traumatized. 
And I get notes all the time from people saying, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. Of course it could. Lots of things could go wrong. But we can't be what David Pluff once described. Democrats can't be what David Pluff once described as bedwetters. You got to go out there and you got to fight and you got to win the election. And I think the convention struck exactly the right notes. I think one important thing to understand about the 2016 election is this, is that whomever the election was about was the person who was losing the election. And for 99% of the election, the election was about Donald Trump until James Comey made it about Hillary Clinton in the last week. And then by 78,000 votes across three states, Donald Trump narrowly won. That's, that's what happened. So you want this race to be about Donald Trump. Then the second piece of it is, is policy. And I'll, I'll just, I don't want to take us down a, down a rabbit hole on this, but a, a, a vestigal Republican perspective might be this. All of this stuff from a policy perspective is a fantasy in this country until COVID is under control, until we are able to deal with the economic crisis. I mean, the Republicans and Trump burned $3 trillion with a T in the month of March, right? At some point, right, even the United States of America will run out of money, right? Our fiscal house is a disaster. And so what I, what I hope to see, I, I would love to see Vice President Harris not stay for the president's inaugural address because she's already en route to Air Force Two to fly to Ottawa to make a call on the Canadian prime minister and then off to London and to Paris and to Germany and around the world tour on our allies getting ready for the president's first repair America's standing reputation in the, in the world. We have, we have some cleanup to do legislatively on this. We, we have to pass a new voting rights and a civil rights and an election security act. It's like a first order of business. We have to pass fundamental ethics reform. We have to prevent acting secretaries who have no possibility of ever being confirmed completely unqualified from running amok in places like Homeland Security. You know, we, we, there's been no governance in this country for so long, right? There, there just has to be the ability to achieve something. We have to, we have to pass an immigration reform bill, like immediately with a, with a Democratic Senate. Like we, we have to get some stuff done. It, but it's a mistake, I think, to take the focus off of Trump and the disaster and the magnitude of it that this country faces because we elected the former host of The Apprentice to be the president of the United States. Erica? So for balance sake, here's a question from Jim Proc. Are there any high accomplishments of Trump's that you would point to, highlight during his administration? Um... He just did something the other day that I was totally supportive of, but I can't, I can't think about what it was. I would say this. I will give Donald Trump credit for reinvigorating the American space program, the manned space program, and pointing it in the right direction. And I would add that I would give him credit for the First Step Act, which did some criminal justice reform. It doesn't go far enough, but it was a step in the right direction, although there are now insiders who are quoted 
in various stories saying he regrets having done it. But I would give him credit for it. Was there anything missed at the convention? Is there something Biden should be highlighting up to the election? This is from Lisa Watson. I just think, I believe this is true. Donald Trump is the greatest failure in American history, period. There, there has never been an American leader who has performed with this level of an incompetence, ineptitude, stupidity in an hour of crisis in the entire history of the country. None. Not, not even close. That's the message. Right? We, have, we have no chance of getting out of this disaster until he is gone. No chance. And we have no chance of coming back from a really precipitous decline if he's there for another four years. That's the choice. Yeah, I would, I would just add, I agree with that, and that Warren Harding and James Buchanan can now rest easy. They will no longer be thought of as either one of them as the worst president in the history of the United States. Erica, next question. Eileen Rubenstein's asking, what if Trump wins again? What do we do? Steve? <laughs> I, I, might, I might move to Ireland. <laughs> I have the greatest thing an American male can have in this moment in time, which is a Canadian fiance. So we both might win. <laughs> <be. laughs> no, I, look, I, I think at, at a serious level, if he gets reelected, I think Barack Obama was exactly right in his speech. The democracy will not be the same if it's even a genuine democracy four years from now. I mean, I think this is the last chance to save the most noble experiment in self-government, imperfect as it has been. And we're always on the road to trying to make this country better. This is the last chance to save the American experiment. You know, we talk about we've been around for 200 and some years, and that's true. That's actually sh a very short period of time in the history of countries on the face of this earth. So we're still a young country, and we could lose the strength and the values that have made us so important in the world and made America itself such a great endeavor in trying to live up to its founding ideals, which, of course, we don't. But we get closer and closer and closer over time. So I think, I think, you know, everybody says it every four years. This is the most important election of our lifetime. I happen to think it is the most important election of our lifetime. And maybe in the lifetime of America, except for 1864. Would you advise Biden to avoid debating Trump? This is from Mark Donahue. No. Absolutely not. No. He's got to confront him. So Trumpism must be confronted. It must be denounced. Trump needs to be, frankly, put in his place. That's what Biden needs to do. And let me add something to that. All of this uh, spin that's come out of the Trump campaign about Biden's out of it, he's intellectually challenged, he can't string a sentence together, which was, is an odd criticism coming from Trump, who this morning said he went up to Maine and gave lobsters back to Maine. But we'll leave that aside. All of this lowers expectations for Biden. It's political malpractice of the first order. If Biden goes into a debate with Trump and he performs at the level he performs, say, in his final debate with Bernie Sanders, that whole argument is out the window. 
And then all, all Trump's going to be left with, I think, are the three arguments he appears to be making in addition right now. One, the country is in lawless chaos, and I, I'm going to send in the troops and fix it, what Steve was talking about. Number two, Biden is going to create a pathway to citizenship for immig immigrants. And I guess that must come out of ideology or id, because the polling all shows that somewhere around 65%, 70% of people do want to create a pathway to citizenship and achieve real immigration reform. And thirdly, Biden's going to raise your taxes, which, by the way, I think taxes are going to have to go up. But they use a clip where he says, let me tell you, if I'm elected president, I'm not going to cut your taxes. I'm going to raise them. Who was that clip to? It was Biden speaking to a group of very wealthy donors. Uh, so, I, you know, I think he should debate. I, and I'll, I'll add one other thing. Richard Nixon in 1960 thought his whole card was experience. He was the guy who could stand up. He'd stood up to Khrushchev in the kitchen in Moscow. He was the guy who could stand up in a debate. And he eagerly accepted the debates with JFK. Uh, he stupidly, after winning the coin flip, decided to let Kennedy go first because he, like a college debater, would refute what Kennedy said. So Kennedy set the whole tone of the debate. And frankly, the argument experience counts just went away after that debate because Kennedy looked like he could stand up to Nixon. Therefore, he could do the job as president. So I think it would be a terrible mistake for Biden to avoid debates. I think that, you know, this whole idea that Biden is somehow like not up for this, you know, Trump routinely slurring his words. He's routinely incoherent. He's distempered. He's confused. He's physically increasingly enfeebled in his movements and his walking. You know, I, I, I you know, I think he's not well. Um, and I think he lies about medical information. You know, there's why was Donald Trump rushed to Walter Reed Hospital at midnight? Like, and I don't believe the representations from the White House. And I'll tell you why. And it's a small, it's a small thing, but it's, but it's, uh, but it's an important one. You know, they release medical information about the health of the president. And, you know, that medical information includes routine stuff like weight. And Donald Trump says he weighs 240 pounds, which is ludicrous. And you know, we don't have any idea what Trump's health is. We're never going to see the records. Um, but it doesn't appear to be well. Biden certainly does. And I think that this is an instance of Trump projecting onto Biden what he sees in the mirror and the people around him seeing in the flesh is a really significant deterioration. I mean, if you want to watch a video, watch some Donald Trump videos from six years ago. Go back to the advent of his racist birth or conspiracy theory. Watch him on TV talking about that compared to how he does in the interviews today. I mean, if there's anyone in this race who's in decline, it's, it's certainly Donald Trump. Deborah Kaplan's asking, what do you think about the progressives that are complaining so bitterly about their interests not being covered adequately at the DNC? How do we communicate to the public that re-elected Donald Trump by his base is a potential tragedy for the entire country? I think those progressives represent a kind of small part of the progressive movement. Bernie Sanders has tried very hard to keep the party unified. There were a lot of progressives who spoke at the convention. I agree with Steve. 
They're building a big inclusive tent at a moment when the country is in grave crisis so that other people who are not normally Democrats could join in this endeavor makes all the sense in the world. And I thought the miracle of this convention, if it had a miracle, was that Democrats came out united. They came out looking reasonable. They made a powerful case for Biden. And they made a good, a very powerful case on policy as well. The Twitterverse is not the political universe. And I think we all have to recognize that. We're nearing the end, but we have time for one more quick question for Steve. Great. So Paul Dapkus is asking, what happens if Biden wins, but the Republicans win the Senate again? Will we be stuck in neutral for four more years? Well, I don't I don't think the Republicans are going to hold the Senate. You know, the, the numbers are not good in a number of races. Yeah. But look, I I don't know. I you know, I hope that the Republicans lose the majority. That's what I think is going to happen. But, you know, the the party is the party is deeply toxic. It is a uh, injurious force in our in our national life, and it's going to come become broadly crazier if, if Joe Biden wins. I mean, when you have this QAnon nut from Georgia, which this is the next metastasis of all of this, is QAnon, which will fuse with the Republican Party. Laura Loomer, who just won a primary in in Florida, the, there's no evidence to suggest that the crazy people are going to be deterred by loss. And so, you know, I think it would, it would, it would probably be as bad as it's ever been. But the, the magnitude of the crisis is such that it's hard to contemplate total paralysis with, with Joe Biden in the, in the White House. I, he's known Mitch McConnell for 40 years. I, I don't know. I don't know. But, it's, it's, but they're not a force for good. That's for sure. Okay. I want to thank all of you for for tuning in. I want to profoundly thank Steve. Uh, and he's someone I admire immensely, not only for his talent, but for his sense of principle. And as you go through the fall and you see the ads from the Lincoln Project, just think about Steve Schmidt, because he is a driving force in creating them. I want to thank the staff here at the Center for the Political Future and the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and Jamie and Deborah. And we'll see you for our next broadcast uh, one week from today after the Republican convention. Steve, thank you again. Thank you, Bob. Thank everybody thank you, else. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 